On your journey through life, you are the hero. There are times, however, when it is beneficial to have an advisor to guide you along your path. Welcome to the Smart Money Simplified Podcast with Brent Mikosh, certified financial planner, certified investment management analyst, and co-founder of MP Advisors, LLC. In this podcast, Brent discusses some of the most important and interesting topics of the day as they relate to finance, the economy, and beyond. Now, on to the show. Hello, and welcome to Smart Money Simplified with Brent Mikosh. Brent, what's going on, my man? Eric, you know, I got up this morning. I went to the gym. I got on the treadmill. I ran about three and a half miles in preparation. Tomorrow, I'm running a half marathon. So I'm running 13 miles tomorrow. So I, you know, I think that's impressive, right? That I got out and moved my body a little bit. Yeah. And you know, I'm in Nebraska, which is like super flat. So right. I went onto my porch and I looked down the road three and a half miles and went back inside. <laughs> it did. That? You saw probably the next state from your porch in Nebraska. <laughs> it was three degrees. I said, no, I'm good. I'm going to go ahead and, you know, eat breakfast, get coffee and go to work. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. I'm not of the same mindset. I do need to exercise though. So maybe you and I'll talk about that later sometime. We, we can talk about that. So I'm, I'm excited. I'll be in Sedona tomorrow running a half marathon. And, and you know, awesome. when we think of pinnacles of running, a lot of people think of the Boston Marathon. And uh, everybody's mm. heard of the Boston Marathon. Oh, it's yeah. a major, major goal for a lot of runners to get to that. And there's a spot in the Boston Marathon called Heartbreak Hill, which you hit at about mile 20.5. And it's a, you got about a 91 foot climb at mile 24. Wow. And it just blows people out because they've been, they've been at this experience now for 20 plus miles. Now, if I were to ask you at the pinnacle of running the Boston marathon. Me? Uh, sure. I mean, <laughs> now that's, what's the one marathon I know. I mean, if that's what you're asking me, yeah, absolutely. The Boston marathon seems to be the thing. And I never knew about the hill. Why would they do that toward the end of the race? And, and why is it uphill feet, instead right? of downhill? I mean, it's crazy hill at mile 20.5. <laughs> it's insane, Ugh. but they do that. Now, what if I were to tell you that there's a whole nother, there's a whole nother destination for people that are in the long running? I'll give you one example. The race called the Western States. It starts in Lake Tahoe. It runs down uh, basically through the Sierra Nevada, and uh, it's 100 miles. And wow. in the Western States, there's 18,000 feet of climbing through that 100 miles. We're talking about you know single track trails or deep in the mountains. Jeez. The Hard Rock 100, San Juan Mountains in Colorado. It's 100 miles. There's 33,000 feet of climbing in that 100 miles. Who Who is crazy enough to do that kind of thing? I get tired driving 100 miles. Yeah. <laughs> I need to take well, a break. Well, I am pretty fired up. I got a guest today joining me. I have John Burton. I first met John actually in 2011. And I ran with, the time was my first ultra marathon. It was a 50-mile race in the South Hills of Black Dakota, or, excuse me, Black Hills of South Dakota. John was running, his, it was your first 100-mile race, wasn't it, John? Yes. Well, it was my first hundred mile finish. It wasn't my first hundred mile attempt. Okay. There we go. And so it was his first hundred mile finish was in South Dakota. When I first met him. We've kept in contact since then. Since then I, I've done the 50 mile distance a couple of times and I haven't, I haven't ventured beyond that. John has done up to 200 mile races since that point. So we're talking about a whole different level of running and it's a world that I think if you're not in that ultra running community, it's something completely different, something that people didn't even know existed and was out there. Got a little bit of exposure several years ago when the book Born to Run came out, uh, where they talked about that quite a bit. But John's a guy that uh, has a ton of experience in the space. And when he's not running, he's also a software product manager. So you've got two kind of really competing personality traits. So you've got, you've got the software product manager side, and then you've got this ultra running side. And I guess let's just open it in this way. First, John, tell us a little bit about yourself 
how you started mm-hmm. running and what motivates somebody to get up and decide they want to do a hundred or 200 mile running race. Now we're not talking motorcycles here to anybody that's <laughs> listening. This is, you're doing this under your own power on foot. So John, yeah. thank you for joining me. Oh, Brent, thanks for having me. And uh, so, the uh, introduction made me a little bit uncomfortable because I'm a pretty humble guy. I don't like to, you know, constantly talk about my running. I would never you know, mention that I've won two state championships or uh, a national championship never <laughs> i don't have trophies littered around my office or anything yeah <laughs> so give us an idea in terms of who you are what got you started in this and uh just tell us more about yourself and what got you here yeah sure so i think it's all all relative um i know you're a big fan of uh david goggins who's a yeah pretty famous ultra runner, celebrity, I've written some books. And you know, that guy's a badass Navy SEAL, special warfare, all jacked. Eats 800 calories a day, raw carrots or something. Only yeah. takes cold showers. <laughs> yep. <laughs> sleeps three hours a night. And I, I think that's what a lot of people think about when they think of these crazy ultra runners. And I want to say I'm kind of the, the antithesis of that. As you mentioned, I'm a nerdy business computer software guy, right? I'm a product manager in, in tech. I was never really a great athlete. I was literally the slowest runner in my elementary school, dead last in, in every sprint. I will say I, I did have some aptitude for longer distance running. So when it came to the 600 meters, I actually uh, won in our school, I think mainly because no one else wanted to run that far in fifth grade. Right. Uh, I, I went to the city championships and I got last place. <laughs> so no one would ever look at me and say, oh, that guy's going to be winning 100-mile races uh, one day. But like anything, whether it's work or relationships or hobbies and other skills you want to get good at, it, at least for me, it's not about having some natural gift. It's about putting in the hard work and making a, a conscious effort to improve, you know, looking for new training strategies. Yeah, watching the, the diet a little bit, but I'll tell you right now, I'm not eating 800 calories a day of carrots you know i like my beer i like my bread uh, i like a a good dessert but getting into running it's something i'd always enjoyed and my father was a runner Uh, he worked in a an automobile factory general motors Oldsmobile in in lansing michigan yeah you're michigan guy that's right yeah originally and he smoked pack of cigarettes a day and then he'd go out and run marathons you know it was uh, so for me it was as a kid that was just your dad runs marathons. It was kind of a normal thing to go out running with him in the in the evenings. And then I ran cross country in high school. It was un, very unremarkable. I was the fifth or fourth guy on the team. So one of the last people to even score any points, you know, kind of Mr. Irrelevant in most, in most races. Um, but I enjoyed it and I, I stuck with it. And, you know, it's it, you start seeing a little bit of, of progress. And I go, oh, I wasn't last place this time. Oh, I, I broke my PR. I think as long as you're in, enjoying something, putting in the effort, um, you know, comes easy or it's manageable, especially when you start seeing progress and seeing results. And so, yeah, it's something I've been doing all my life. And um, I did some triathlons, some 5Ks, 10Ks, half marathons. And then I was doing a, um, a trail race, a half marathon trail race out here in California. I'd moved from Michigan and uh, very flat, not many hills where I lived. And when I moved out to California for work in the late 90s, it was a bit of a shock for me. They had these things called mountains, and people actually <laughs> ran up the mountains. Yeah. And I signed up for this half marathon, and I didn't really read the fine print or the details. 
got there and discovered it was 10K or, you know, six and a half miles uphill and then right back downhill. <clears throat> so the race went off. I'm a young kind of fit guy at the time and up there at the front, you know, thinking, oh, yeah, this is great. And then we start climbing up the hill gradually and I get passed by a few of the front runners. Well, like, oh, it's fine. You know, <laughs> I should yeah. keep going. And then I, I start getting passed by some mid packers and some people who did not look that fit. And then some older gentlemen, uh, mom's <laughs> pushing stroller. <laughs> you know, everyone passes me and it was just demoralizing. And uh, I was crushed after that. So you can either give up or you can double down. So I started training in the hills. I'm like, all right, I can't have this happen again. Got a little bit better at it and uh, went back a couple of years later, did that same race. And I think I finished third place that time. That's a pretty big um, improvement. Yeah. So I'm standing around the uh, finish line. You have all the junk food for runners, right? For ultra runners, long distance so runners, sugar. your M&Ms. It's all, all sugar food. Yeah. I'm sitting there kind of having a good time eating some food. And the woman who won the women's race, finished. She finished pretty high overall, top 10, I think, uh, first woman. And we started chatting, and now that's my wife, Amy. We've been married. I did not know that's how you found how you met Amy. Yeah, yeah, we met at a half marathon trail race in the, uh, in the mountains. So and There it was you go. Talk- that's a big yeah. payoff from running already. Well, there you go, right? Taste yeah. dividends. And it was talking with her where she told me she was training for this thing called a 50K. And I've heard of marathons. I've heard of the Boston Marathon. I'd never run a marathon at the time. But, you know, I I wanted to impress her. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that's funny you mentioned it. I'm also training for a, an ultra marathon 50K. Yeah, I'm, I'm all about that kind of stuff. And, and so for our listeners, and when we say ultra marathon is going to come up a bunch in this conversation, yeah. it's anything above a marathon, which is 26.2 miles. So when you start getting 50Ks, about 30 miles, you get beyond that distance. That's an ultra marathon. So anyway, John, back to you. Yeah, on thanks that. for the clarification there. Yeah, so she told me she was training for this thing, which I thought was crazy. I didn't know anyone ran further than a marathon. And uh, yeah, we made plans, go for a training run. And then she introduced me to some of her her ultra marathon friends. And uh, kind of a funny story, Brent. They told me, yeah, we're going to go for a long run on Saturday if you want to join us. And at the time, I was a road runner. And I'm like, yeah, you know, sounds good. So I show up. I'm wearing my road running shoes. Uh, I think they said to bring some water because it was kind of a long, hilly run in the mountains. So I brought one of those little, like, I don't know, 10 or 12 ounce yeah. plastic bottles of water that you get at the gas station. And these guys all had on packs with water bottles in the front and water in the back and snacks. And I was like, what? what is wrong with these people, right? We're going for a run. So we take off running and I look around. I'm the only one running. They're walking. And it's kind of a, a slight hill, but like, all right, this is just ridiculous. So yeah. I keep running and I'm in the front for eight miles, 10 miles. I start getting a little tired, a little thirsty. And, you know, this is all uphill in the mountains. I polished off my, my little water bottle. About mile 20, Amy, now my wife, she catches up to me. She's like, hey, you went out pretty hard. I'm like, well, you know, just running. She's like, where's your water? I'm like, oh, I drank it already. <laughs> So, yeah, I would have died out there. Luckily, she shared some of her water with me, and I made it back to the finish line. But it was a very humbling experience, and I, I quickly learned why those uh, ultra runners started off walking up the hill. Uh, I learned that it's not a marathon where you're going out at six-minute pace and doing it the whole time. There are places where it makes sense to do power hiking or conserve your energy if you're on a steep hill where it 
in the long run, it's better to, to hike that set, hike that section and then save your legs for the more runnable downhill or flat section. So that was my first introduction to this world of uh, long distance ultra running. So what was your first actual ultra, ultra race? Man, Brent, I honestly don't remember. It was probably, I think, a, a local 50K, maybe yeah. a local 50 miler. I do remember some of those uh, first races where I didn't really understand at the time proper training. Coming from a, nutrition, more of a like, yeah. nutrition, hydration. Yep. So it was always the same. I would go out running as hard as I could the first couple hours and then uh, wouldn't eat anything, of course. No, no gels or, or nutrition. Maybe drink some water at the aid stations. And then the last you know, 10 miles or so was always this struggle. Or, oh, why am I doing this? I got to make it to the finish line. I think that probably sums up my first four or five races before I started to discover that, you know, you can bring food with you. You can bring gels with you. You can drink water or sports drinks during these these events. Yeah, and so, and so for you know, for people that are listening to this that might not be sure how these races work, yeah. generally they happen in very remote places. Generally, you have five, six, seven, sometimes longer distances between aid stations. Aid stations, you know, your setup at an ultra run is very different than you would have in a road race where it might be some Gatorade and water and some gels. I mean, they literally, they're movable feasts. There could be tacos, there could be pizza, there could be pretty much everything. Quesadillas. Quesadillas, you name it. And, but they're almost like these little islands of civilization between very long distances of not a lot of anything. And th these are not the Boston Marathon where you have thousands of participants. There might be 40, 50 or it's, you can go a very long period of time without seeing a soul. So you're on you're on your own for a while. You got you got to manage that nutrition, got to manage that water, and all the other things obviously to keep your body going. But so so you get into this, you run a couple of these races. And I'm really curious, and we've talked about this a little bit. But what is it about the this distance, these races that you find so appealing that if that that then caused you to push yourself? Beyond the 50K, I mean, 200 miles is insane. I think it's insane. I've done several ultras. I think 200 miles is crazy. And I do want to talk about that experience. But what was it that, what what set the spark off that made you say, hey, what, you know what, 50K is not really the distance anymore. There's something beyond. Yeah. And uh, Brent, I'm glad you gave that clarification to the listeners. So, and maybe even adding a little more context. Please. Some of these races, as you mentioned, they're not huge fields. And even if there is a rather large field, and large for ultra running could just be a couple hundred runners. There are very few races, maybe uh, UTMB in Europe, and just a few races like Way to Cool where you might have 10,000 or more people. But a typical ultra marathon, you might have under 100 people. The big ones at most are two, 300 people. And so when you're talking about a race that could take 20 to 30 hours, depending on how mountainous the terrain is and how long the course is, you get as you described, long sections where you're going maybe eight miles, maybe 20 miles, depending on the race, in between aid stations where you don't see anyone, particularly if you're running in the front of the race. Which you often are. <laughs> which yeah. later in my, my career I, I started to do. Yeah, you might go the entire race and never run with anyone else. So you're out there potentially 20, 30 hours alone with your thoughts other than maybe every couple hours you come to an aid station and you got the, yeah, you're doing great, and you eat some food and then you're alone with yourself again. Um, and so if you talk to different people about why they do it, you get some different answers. Uh, but for me, I kind of enjoy the solitude and the time alone. And you can kind of use it as a walking meditation, a running meditation where 
I'm not really thinking about my problems or issues at work or relationships, just kind of being present in the moment and looking at that mountain peak over there or looking at that river. And it seems odd to say that for 20, 30 hours, you're not thinking about anything. But in some cases, it's just peaceful. You're alone in the wilderness and enjoying the scenery. You kind of get into a rhythm where you're pushing hard, but you're not feeling like you're dying. And for me, I think that's a big part of it is just being alone in nature or, you know, there may be periods where you're running with one or two other people and you, you have a little conversation and you might run together for a couple of hours and talk about all kinds of things. And then 10, 20 hours, you don't see them and you're running by yourself. So I think that that's part of it. But also you hear a lot of uh, endurance athletes talk about wanting to challenge themselves and see what they're capable of. And I think for me, that was definitely part of it because having not been a particularly gifted athlete, I found something that I enjoyed. And then eventually, after putting in a lot of work, started seeing some success at it, right? You started to think, oh, I thought a marathon was the most anyone can do. And now I've run 50K, or in your case, you've run 50 milers. Right? And, you know, we joke about, I, I legitimately don't like to drive 50 miles. I'm, like, I'm not driving 50 miles up to San Francisco, <laughs> <laughs> right? And here you are, you're running 50 miles. And then you think, well, could I do 100K? Could I do 100 miles? And, you know, what's the limit? You have people who are doing these events where they're running the entire length of the Appalachian Trail or the Pacific Coast Trail, and it's taking them a month, and they're running all day, every day, and they sleep for a few hours at night. So you start to look at some of these things and think, am I capable of doing that? Is this something I could do? And so for me, that was definitely part of the appeal is, yeah. you know, can I run 100 miles? Can I run 200 miles? What's the limit? How good can I get or how far can I push myself? Yeah. And I, I concur with that. I think that, that again, for me, I'm going to echo what you're saying in, in the mm -hmm. sense of you're right. You have time to think about everything, but sometimes you think about nothing and you have these sort of rare moments of clarity for sure. Yeah. And that race where I met you, because I want to talk about your feet after that race. <laughs> but I remember it was a mile, about 27, mile was 50 miles and obviously John was doing a hundred and a mile 27. Um, I badly, badly twisted my ankle, you know, and I was thinking, you know, this race is probably over. And then it kind of went numb. And so I'm like, all right, let's just kind of keep going on it. And then I didn't realize I knew nothing about hydration. I knew nothing about managing your electrolytes. And I'm, I'm at mile 36. And I was still managing kind of a little bit of a gait, but I'm in a lot of pain. And now my vision goes very narrow and black and white. And then I just flat out lay down on my back. And a guy comes up and he says, have you had any salt today? And I've been drinking a ton of water but absolutely no salt. And I said, no, he goes, eat this now. <laughs> and he'd be like a, a, you know, a handful of salt pills. And all of a sudden the world opens up and I was able to stagger in and, and finish that thing in a lot longer than for sure I thought it was going to take. But my takeaway from that is halfway through the race, I didn't think I physically had anything left, but somehow you finished it, you know? And it's just that one step in front of another of the other, then you realize you can accomplish far more if you just take that one little moment at a time. I mean, is that very similar? When you talk about challenging yourself, is that the same mentality that you have? Yeah, Brendan, it's funny you mentioned that because I've had races, races where I've won. And I almost quit halfway into the race. Yeah. Like, I, I can't do this anymore. Like, I'm exhausted. My body's falling apart. The knee's hurting. The foot's hurting. You know, I fell off a bridge and hurt my wrist and just bleeding. Like, yeah, I'm done. I, I legitimately can't go another mile. But then you think, well, I can probably go another half mile, though. <laughs> Dig into that experience more because I don't fully understand it. And what you're describing sounds terrible. 
I mean, it sounds awful. Like make the pain stop. So, yeah. so what is it that keeps you moving forward? Yeah. So if I think back to uh, this race here, Hard Rock 100, which I is definitely want to talk the, about the Hard Rock, the picture yeah. behind me. So the 100 mile races you described in the San Juan Mountains in Colorado, where it has the equivalent of, of Mount Everest gain, right? Um, nearly 30,000 feet of vertical gain. And I was in that race at altitude. The altitude uh, sickness had gotten to me. I was feeling nauseous, uh, feeling like I wanted to puke, trouble breathing, just taking short little breaths. I had some severe cramping where I just, I put my foot the wrong way. It felt like my whole leg was going to cramp up. And this was, I just sit down at a rock, sit, sit down, lean against this rock, catch my breath, watch people come by. And this was, I don't know, mile 20 of yeah, the race. Yeah, a long way to go. <laughs> I can Clearly, I can't do 80 more miles of this, right? Just ridiculous. And then I'm, I'm hiking up this mountain near the top of the mountain and in a bad mood, not feeling great. And it's icy, snowy, icy. And I just misstepped on a, I thought it was just snow, but there was some ice underneath it and uh, misstepped and slipped. And I started sliding off the mountain, frantically grabbing for, you know, rocks or anything to kind of keep myself from, from going off the edge. And uh, I grabbed a pile of rocks and there was a big rock on top. It fell and it landed on my finger, shattered it into five pieces. So now I'm altitude sick. I'm nauseous. Can't breathe. And I've got a broken finger that's throbbing. And really, I thought, okay, I've trained so hard for this race. I'm not going to quit, but it's not looking good. And then keep moving forward. Uh, oh, first of all, you can't just stop on the top of a mountain. You freeze to death, right? So you need to get yourself down to the next aid station to civilization maybe it's not civilization maybe it's a, a logging road where some people were able to drive in and they've set up a little kind of canopy or tent and they've got food and maybe a nurse or a medic or someone who can look after you worst case scenario they can give you a ride out so you got to get to that point right self-extraction get to an aid station where then you can assess and that could take sometimes take a couple hours so a couple hours later I'm like well i was ready to quit on top of the mountain but somehow i made it another couple of hours and can I make it to the next aid station this is this, I mean it's a broken finger I don't run on my fingers right so I can keep running with a broken finger um, and really I think a big part of it is uh, problem solving and troubleshooting so when you have these issues you start thinking okay I'm having trouble or I'm cramping up or in your case you're hyponatremic because you drank too much water and not enough electrolytes if you know what you're doing and you've been in those situations before you can say okay I know I need to take some salt or I know I need to take in some more calories. Or if the altitude is getting to you, I know I need to slow down, get my heart rate down, maybe not push so hard when I'm at high altitude and wait until you get down to the lower altitudes and start pushing hard again. So it just becomes a series of problem solving. How do I, how do I solve this particular issue, right? In your case with your knee or if it's an ankle, you know, how do I maybe change my gait or my stride so I'm not putting so much weight on it, which is not ideal, but you're still able to continue. So in that case, in Hard Rock, uh, I kept going, and eventually I started feeling great again. And the last 10 miles of that race, uh, I was just flying. I was being chased by a kind of famous professional ultra runner. I thought for sure was going to catch me, and I put 18 minutes on him on that last 10K, just hammering it. So you know, where did that energy come from, and, and how do you tap into those reserves? And that's again, kind of gets to the crux of what we were talking about, or at least hinting at, which is as humans, we, we have so much potential and 
I think it's very rare that we fully tap into it unless we're in a, a life-threatening emergency where, you, you know, the story of the old woman who lifts the car up to, yeah. after she's got all the adrenaline and everything flowing through her. And so I do think that we're, in general, we're capable of a lot more than maybe we think we can. We just have to put ourselves in those situations, ideally with the proper training and the proper experience so that we can we can accomplish that. But yeah, that, that example at Hard Rock was kind of, for me, that was when the light clicked on that, okay, you can get through some really tough situations uh, if you think through your problems, do some troubleshooting and just kind of tap into those hidden reserves that maybe we, we don't access on a regular basis. Yeah. And I think you see, you know, in, in terms of doing these larger events and again, you know, I, I can only speak from the 50 mile distance, but you have a lifetime, not, not a full, almost a lifetime of emotions like it, huh? in that period of time. You know, I remember even going back to that Black Hills race, I, I kind of very typically went out way too hard in the beginning, um, but it's beautiful. The day is perfect. It's, you know, it's, grass is green and everything's alive and vibrant. And I am feeling astounding as high as I've ever probably been. There's a picture of me that we're coming through an aid station that I have. And there's this look on my face. I still look at it and I'm like, I know what I was feeling at that exact moment. It was right. pure ecstasy. Now, fast forward seven, eight hours later, <laughs> and it was it was a horror show. And then you forward, you know, to, to when you finish, but you go through this range. And I think what for me is a great learning experience whenever you're going through these physical issues is that you realize that it passes. Whatever it is passes. The good stuff passes. Unfortunately. Yeah, unfortunately. It'd be great if you could maintain that. The bad stuff passes, but it, but it, it ebbs and flows. And so I think that even psychologically and mentally, you're forced to deal with a range of emotions in a very compressed time. And I think there's a lot of magic in that. You know, like how much are you going to listen to that negative voice versus how much you're going to believe in the euphoria? You know, it's never as good as you think. It's never as bad as you think either. The truth is somewhere in between. But I think that's that's the magic of some of these distances. Now, one thing I definitely want to talk about with you is, so these races, when we're touching on them a little bit in terms of, you know, they're remote, they're out there. Can, John, you agree with me when I say that it's a kind of pretty eclectic group of people to put it mildly that engage in these type of races. Now, for those of us, the people that are watching this on video, you know, John looks pretty pulled together. He's got nice black jacket on red shirt, glasses looking very sophisticated. This <laughs> cold in here, man. Yeah. <laughs> occasionally the, the stars and stripes speedo and a cape will come out, mm -hmm. you know? So, so there's some strange, some strange characters, and there might not be anything more strange in the ultra running world, which by itself is weird, than the bark than the Barclays. Tell me about that, and, and let us, as the listener, let us know exactly what this thing is, because I think right. it's the craziest thing in the entire planet. So Bar the the Barclay Marathons, if you're not familiar with it, uh, there's a Netflix documentary about it, but um, <clears throat> it's a a race in Tennessee, kind of as Brenton mentioned, very very eclectic, very hard to get into. There's this convoluted process of applying to even get into the race. Only 40 or so people are allowed in each year and you have to be one of the, one of the top runners. Everyone in it has 100, 200 mile races that records on FKT. So the fastest known time of someone running from one mountain range to another. So around the world, just the top runners, 100K champion from one country, 100K champion from another country, and definitely some characters. It's and, like uh, the secret society of ultra running. If you get the invite, it's totally. It is. It, it's. If you think of, you've ever seen uh, the old uh, Jean Claude Van Damme uh, movie Bloodsport, like this underground tournament yes. of uh, the top martial <laughs> arts fighters. That's how I describe Barclays. This yeah. underground race, the top runners from around the world, 
It used to be no fanfare, no media. You just showed up on well, April Fool's Day and, and did this race. But it, it picked up a following over the years, and people started live uh, tweet streaming it, and you got media out there. And the year I did it, I was actually carrying a GoPro to record footage for uh, a TV show that was interested in it. But the race is, is unique in that most of it is is off trail, and you're so you have to navigate just through the woods through saw briars and thickets and you're not allowed any gps device or electronic device so uh, the race director who's this old school guy laz he, he has a beard and he wears a flannel shirt and he smokes a cigarette that's the start of the race when he lights up his cigarette the race starts <laughs> everything about this this race is crazy including as i mentioned you don't get a, a gps device he issues everyone a ten dollar watch from walmart and i don't know if you can see this. yes do this this, this still has work. water and fog in it. <laughs> this was totally useless to me. What time is it? I don't know. It's, it's fog <laughs> o'clock. I have no idea how long I've been running or where I was running. And But you get one of these things at the start. And um, so this is Barkley Marathon's emergency clicker. Right? So if you yeah. find yourself lost out in the woods with no one around, you press this button and help is coming. The helicopter is arriving. Except... This is totally non-functional. There is no electronics in here, no battery in here. This is just a piece <laughs> of metal. That's nothing. So, and that's the motto of uh, of Barclay. I don't know if you saw when I held up the race there, but if you can see the bottom there, it says, "Help is not coming." So, you're out there on your own. So, only I think 15 people have ever completed this race. Some people have completed it multiple times, but you know they like to say less people have, more people have been on the moon than completed Barclay Marathon. So many years. Nobody finishes the race. You have to do five loops. They claim it's 20 miles. I think it's closer to 26 miles per loop. And again, just through the forest, you're navigating with a, a hand-drawn map and a compass. And you've got to find uh, a book and tear a page from it or something, right? That's yeah, how so, completed the... Right. So each lap, like the first lap I was bid number 55. Uh, the next lap I was bid number 109. And you're going through the woods and you have to find these books that are hidden in trees, under rocks, and just the most bizarre places. And then, you know, whatever your, your bib number is, if you're bib number 109, then you have to find page 109 <laughs> in the book and rip it out. And the books all have titles like Dead in the Woods or What Am I Doing With My Life? You know, <laughs> so they're kind of mocking you. The whole race is just crazy and eclectic, but really is sort of like the, the Super Bowl of ultra running. The process for applying and getting in is, is closely guarded. There's a lot of steps and you have to write essays and do other things. And I was lucky enough that I finally had some success in ultra running, won some 100-mile races. Uh, I finished third at the first Tahoe 200-mile race. Uh, and I, I applied for Barkley and I got into the race and, and I was thrilled because, right, this is for me, the the ultimate. This is love hard rock, and, and hard rock is my favorite race. But at the time, I thought, hey, Barkley is really, you know, the hardest thing to get into. I want to do it, and I want to try to finish it. So, spoiler alert: I did not finish it. Um, I finished two loops, but unfortunately, the second loop was so slow <laughs> that I was not allowed to go back out and continue for a third loop. But you kind of go in one direction and then the opposite direction. So I made two loops, one loop in each direction. And for me, that was, you know, something to feel pretty good about. My my goal was to not be uh, the first person to get lost. And some people spent the night out there. They found them days later over in another county or. You know. <laughs>
there's, there's a lot of sketchy areas in the woods in Tennessee, as you might imagine. There's a, a prison there, and there's a pretty thriving uh, meth industry, and those are the main employers in that particular area. Oh, where see, the really not a place you want to stray off what yeah, is not so even you a course. you don't necessarily want to get lost and wind up on somebody else's property in, in the middle of the night. You know, it's uh, not end too well, but uh, it, it was a great race, and uh, I'm glad I had the chance to do that. Now, let's talk about the Tahoe 200. Yeah. Because to those that, that want to, and we'll, we'll do some contact information, everything at the end of this, but you have a phenomenal blog where you sort of cover a lot of these different races and experiences you've had. Tahoe 200 to me was because I had started following you because this is a few years, several years, I think, after we met. Mm-hmm. This is the most insane thing I think I've ever seen, heard of anyone trying to accomplish. So essentially, it is the rim trail around Lake Tahoe, correct? Was it one loop? Yeah. So the, the, TRT, the Tahoe Rim Trail, is 165 miles, but okay. part of it goes through Desolation Wilderness, which is a federal forest, and you're not allowed to have races in general on federal property. So for the Tahoe 200, I said, oh, no problem. We'll just go further around Desolation Wilderness. So you're doing most of the TRT trail plus a little bonus excursion through some very remote mountains. Yeah. And so 200 miles. Mm-hmm. Tell, I mean, tell me, what the heck is that like? How do you, how does your body a endure that recover from that? I know reading your running blog, reading your blog, it was hilarious. Cause you said, I jumped out and did the first hundred miles too fast. Like what is you're towing the line for a 200 mile race. Just kind of take some time to walk me through what that experience was like. Sure. So to put it in context for everyone, this is a time in my life where I'd, I'd really kind of gone all in with my running side project. I had a pretty flexible job working from home flexible hours and not a lot of family commitments. I thank my wife, Amy, who's also a runner for doing the most of raising our son at the time. So I was fortunate that I was able to really put in some training to see what I could accomplish. And, and that particular year, I finished Hard Rock, which is, I think most people consider the hardest 100 mile race. And I did quite well. I think I was maybe 13th place. So like I said, held off some of the top pro runners. I was right up there in the top amateurs and really feeling fit and feeling good about myself doing all the little things like I have a well, you can't see it it's off camera but I have a, a hypoxic generator it removes oxygen from the air and replaces it with nitrogen and then uh, yeah, maybe grab it later but you wear this this flight mask and you're breathing this low concentrated oxygen air and the idea is that it prompts some physiological changes in your body your blood acidity and just gets you used to the breathing low oxygen air I was watching my diet. I was training 20, 125 miles a week, just doing everything Massive right. Yeah. yeah. And I thought, this is my, my chance to see what I'm capable of. I know I'm going to get older. I'm going to have to start working more. I have to carry my <laughs> my weight in the family and, and raising my son. But this was an opportunity to really just let's see what I can accomplish. So after that hard rock race, I, I signed up for the Tahoe 200. Really feeling good, and I was confident I was going to win the race. Um, there were people coming over, Australia's 100K champion, and even some of my local friends who are strong runners, but I thought, I'm going for it. I'm going to see what I can do here. And so, Brent, as you described, I approached it like it was a 100-mile race. I ran the first 100 miles as hard as I could. <laughs> All-out effort, ridiculous. And at one point in the race, I'd amassed a four- or five-hour lead, depending on – it's a bit hard because you come to one aid station, and then – they track how long to the next runner. So it was four or five hours. And the race director was already tweeting uh, on Twitter, John Burton about to accomplish history. <laughs> you know? 
the win was in the bag. There was no no way I could lose. I had an insurmountable lead, like 20 miles to go. And uh, spoiler alert, I finished third. <laughs> so, <laughs> third. <laughs> but the wheels came off the bus, whatever metaphor or analogy, it, it became ridiculous. A, a good buddy of mine, uh, Jeff Clowers, was out there with me. You can have a friend. Yeah, Jeff, I know Jeff. Yeah, you, you can uh, at nighttime. You can, uh, for safety reasons, you can have a friend kind of running with you. Pacer, second, yeah. second half of the race, they call it a pacer. Yeah, it's some people take it seriously, and the pacer is out front setting the pace, and you know, like a like a coach. But there was none of that. We were just walking. It was, I'm not even going to call it hiking. I was walking, putting one foot in front of the other, and just to underscore how bad this was. My feet, Brent, you'd mentioned the uh, the Black Hills race where we yeah. met, where afterwards my feet were so wet Destroyed. and uh, yeah. wrinkled, it looked like a, a topo map, right? You could just see these big lines and grooves that really looked like a 3D topo map. It was even worse at the Tahoe 200 after 60, 65 hours of being out there in the rain and the water running. And so we were on this rocky road, boulders and sharp pieces of granite and little rocks everywhere. And it was so bad that my buddy Jeff, he was pointing them out to me like, okay, there's a rock. There's a rock. Because every time I stepped on one, the blisters on my feet and just the, the excruciating burning pain. And so I wish I had a video of this. It must have been ridiculous. Like I'm tiptoeing or <laughs> trying to avoid rocks on this little trail while, you know, the runners behind me got their trucking poles and they come flying by and just leave me in the dust. I think they put an hour on me, you know, the last 10 miles. Um, in, in terms of, you know, how do you recover from something like that? I didn't make it to the award of the award ceremony. I finished third. I got this nice handmade award. I couldn't even go pick it up because I was laying in my motel uh, bed. I couldn't get out of bed. So I was supposed to check out. I called them. I said, oh, I'm staying another day. I can't get out. I physically cannot get out of bed. And then I had work, so I had to get home. I drove home somehow. Somehow, you know, went to work and did my job. Uh, but it probably took six months to for my body to recover from that yeah every night for at least the first three or four weeks i would wake up and my pillowcase and my sheets were just soaking wet like you could wring out the pillowcase and just sweat would drip out of it because my hormonal system my endocrine system was so out of whack from adrenal fatigue and excess cortisol and it was serious um that's the blood frighten you just to have your body responding in that way yeah, I mean, my blood work, my uh, some technical things, my CBK levels, so your tissue, your muscular tissue breaks down, and then you get those basically sludge, chunks of your muscle protein floating through your blood, right? Your body, your kidney, livers, you're, you're trying to filter the stuff out, and it can cause a adrenal uh, kidney failure. In some cases, you know, you, you have to get those levels down. And, uh, and then just the, the hormonal stuff being out of whack, I'm not a super emotional guy, but I'm sitting around and I just start crying randomly. My wife's like, well, what's wrong? Why are you crying? I'm like, oh, Victor put a nice comment on Facebook. Falling, <laughs> 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 tearing up. And now I look back and I'm like, oh man, I was in a bad place there. That was like some serious damage, not just to the muscles, but as I said, to the endocrine and the hormonal system. So yeah, I'm with you. I've never done a 200 mile race. I know there's some people they do. We well, finished it. Yeah, yeah. No, I finished it and I was happy with it, but I wasn't, I did not sign up again next year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Put it that, was, way. that was a one and done, basically. Yeah, I think so. I, I thought about maybe going back and trying again another time, maybe a little more conservative effort, not hammering the first hundred miles so hard, but 
but I've seen people who've done three or four of these races in a year. So it is humanly possible. It is physically possible. You'd probably just have to have a little more self-control and uh, go sure. at it a bit more reasonably, I guess. Sure. So what's, what's next for you in terms of you're, you're overcoming an injury right now, correct? Yeah, I had knee surgery last November. I, I no longer have any cartilage left in my knees, but I don't want to blame that on running. I think yeah. the, the doctor said it's probably genetic. And if anything, the running is what kept me from, you know, I don't have arthritis. I don't have a lot of knee pain. I didn't even know that I didn't have any cartilage until I, a piece of the cartilage that had broken off kind of moved its way to the back of the knee and was causing the knee to catch. So it was interfering yeah. my running. So they did the surgery to remove that, that piece of cartilage. That's like, oh yeah, by the way, you have no cartilage at all in your knee. Yeah. Okay. So I still enjoy running and I rehabbed from that. And I won a local 50 K race where I used to have the course record. And I, I broke my own course record from when I was a younger fitter guy by 15 minutes. So on, on the repaired knee. knee. Yeah. On the repaired knee. So, wow. you know, I can still run. I've still got some fitness. I'm just trying to be a little more careful because I would like to continue running as long as possible. And I enjoy cycling. You can see the bikes behind me and yeah. I enjoy indoor rowing. I actually, where is it? Um, this out, Brent. I, I rode a marathon. So 42 kilometers in my garage on my stationary rower. And they sent me this pin. This is 306 <laughs> marathon, which is you know, not too bad. So, you know, even if I can't run, I have other things I enjoy cycling, mountain biking with my son, doing the rowing stuff. But yeah, so I, during the pandemic, a lot of races were canceled. And I think yep. that that worked out well because it gave my body a bit of a rest. I've been pushing myself. We met in 2011. It was really 2013 where I really, 2013, 14, 15, where I went all in for a few years. And yeah, it took a lot out of me. So the pandemic came around. I think it was good to give my body a little rest and recovery, re-energize. So I still enjoy running. I'd like to get back and do, uh, do hard rock again, Yeah, my favorite race. But my project right now, a couple of things. So here in Santa in the Santa Cruz Mountains here in California, we there used to be a train line that ran from San Jose all the way to Santa Cruz through the mountains. And there were seven or eight portals or tunnels that they had to blast through the mountains. Uh, and so they had this train line. Eventually, trains got bigger with gauge trains, and they couldn't fit through these narrow tunnels. And it was too expensive to retrofit the tunnels, so they abandoned these tunnels. A lot of them, they dynamited shut. But there's still a couple that, that are open that you can go into. And so that was the project that I was working on this year was just going out running in the mountains and trying to find all these tunnels. Hmm. Uh, so find one entrance of the tunnel. And then if you can't go through because it's barricaded, you kind of have to go overland, you know, through people's private property. Their dogs are chasing you, <laughs> all kinds <laughs> of crazy stuff. But yeah, so I, I completed that. I, I found all the tunnels. Um, and then I, I started a new project. So where I, I live, it's near this uh, New Almaden Quicksilver Park. Yes. It used to be owned by Quicksilver Mining Company. So there's uh, hundreds of miles of mining tunnels underneath this park. Uh, most of them are flooded, even though they're above sea level. I think the park gets up to 2,000 feet above sea level. Mm. And even if you go down to just 800 feet above sea level, everything under 800 feet above sea level is underwater in these tunnels. Mm. And because of all that moisture and humidity, timber, the braces that they use, they, they blasted this rock back in the day with black gunpowder or dynamite. And so it cracks the ceiling as well. So they, they prop everything up with this timber, but that timber has been down there a hundred years and with the humidity and the water, it's all kind of rotting and then it collapses. So most of these tunnels are collapsed except for a few that they preserved or maintained. But that was my, my project that I um, was working on and I'm almost done with now, which is 
try to find every mining tunnel uh, that's still open or closed up. And most of them are closed up, but on a few where I think they were so remote and so tough to get to that they maybe couldn't bring down lumber or concrete or whatever they wanted to use to seal up the entrance. So they just put a bunch of dirt in front of the entrance. But over the year, animals or whatever have clawed their way in. So now you can kind of see like a little narrow passage and you can crawl in there. Um, it's normal weekend activities for most people. You know, <laughs> my wife's not happy about this. Well, I got the insurance policy now, so now she's a little more cool with it. Right. Life insurance policy. But yeah, I was starting to think, you know, probably don't want to go too deep into these tunnels because they, a lot of the tunnels you go in like this, but then there's a shaft that goes down a couple hundred or a couple thousand feet. And while there probably was, you know, a wooden ladder at one point, I doubt those wooden ladders are still in, still there or in usable shape. So if you fall a few hundred feet down, even if you land in the water, it's going to be a little tricky to uh, to climb back climb back out of there. Yeah, there's probably natural gases, toxic gases in there as well. Snakes. So, I'm thinking snakes. I thought this rat. I don't know what it was. It was a rat, but it was it looked like a rat, but it was huge. It was the size of a house cat. Uh, I saw that thing in there. I'm like, oh, well, okay, I'm That's out. It. I don't I don't <laughs> want to see what else is living in these tunnels. But yeah, so snakes would be. I don't mind snakes, but Oof. it's the giant rat that kind of. Uh, Freaked me out. Yeah. So John, let me ask you this. So how, if people want to contact you or again, you've got a great, you've got a great blog that you've kept up over the years. How do they find you? Yeah. So, you know, I'm not selling anything. I don't have a paid coaching service or write books. I just enjoy running and helping people out. So if people have questions or they want to improve or they want to know how to train for a certain race, uh, I can send you my email address or I, like you said, I do have the the runningjohn.blogspot.com, but I haven't really updated that in, in many years just because uh kind of ran its natural conclusion. It, the whole point of that blog was to document me training for my first 100 miler yeah, and finishing my first 100 miler because I'd failed a couple of times. So I wanted to document that process. But, you know, then I, I completed the race and completed a few more and I tried to write race reports and make them a little bit entertaining to describe they're fun. it, but they're really fun to those who want to Yeah, read but it. I felt it accomplished what I wanted to accomplish, which is just document this process of going from a, an everyday business computer software guy, not particularly gifted athlete to accomplishing some of these crazy things. So kind of left that out there as a little bit of history, but people are free to reach out to me. Uh, I, I don't have time to do a full-time coaching business anymore, but you know, I work with one or two people at a time. I don't charge anything. I'm just, trying to give back a little bit. So yeah, if anyone has questions or they're interested in, you know, how do I get into this race or how do I do that? Uh, feel free to reach out to me. I'm, I'm happy to help if I can. And I would also say, and you'll be familiar with these guys. And if you're listening in Arizona, or I think now they've expanded up into Colorado and you want to put your toe into this world, there's a phenomenal uh, group called Aravipa Running yes. here in Arizona. It's Jamil, Jamil Corey. Uh, you probably know, I know of him. You probably, you know, Jamil well, and but... I, I did Barkley together. And if you watch his video, I think it's called the year of the Barkley one. Okay. It's about a 30 minute video. He, I got a couple of cameos in there. You can see we're actually breaking into uh Rushy mountain penitentiary. You got to like Shawshank <laughs> redemption. You have to sneak in through the sewage tunnel underneath the prison. The water's just flowing. It's like a raging river. And there's a shot of I was working the camera, and I'm like, oh, I think maybe we could do it. I'm gonna go check it out. So because okay, so you know, so you know Jamil pretty well. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. The awesome thing about Aravipa, and I can't sing the praises of these guys enough, 
is you can go out and they will hold these races over the weekend. I've personally gotten to know all these beautiful mountain ranges we have outside of Phoenix because of Aravipa. Mm -hmm. You can sign up for a 5K up to, in some cases, 100 miles or more. And they're weekend events that these things are occurring. And they do just an absolutely fantastic job. And again, I, I don't, I know of Jamil. It's, it, he actually guy. has a child the same at my, my son's school as well. But I've always been, could not speak highly enough about, about the work that, that those guys do and putting together those races. And for me personally, again, I've gotten to know the countryside around my town here in a way and intimately in a way I never would have had they not been out there doing what they do. And so, yeah, I would say to anybody in Phoenix, pretty much almost every other weekend, particularly this time of year in the summertime, they do night runs and they put on fantastic events. It's a great way to get out there and get kind of a feel for the spirit of what happens at these races for sure. So, Definitely. so parting comments, John, just if you had, if you had to tell anybody's thinking about maybe entering this world, might not even be running. Maybe it's to challenge themselves in a, in something that might be completely foreign or different. doesn't even have to be physical in two sentences. What would you say to them? Yeah, I would say, don't be intimidated by the end goal, which seems completely unreasonable, alien, unachievable. Break it down into manageable pieces and just apply a consistent methodology. Start working towards those little goals, checking them off and approach it like a project. And great like things can happen. Anything else in life and you'll, you'll probably get there. Yeah, awesome. John, thank you so much for joining me. This was awesome. Thank you, Brent. Really appreciate it. This has been fantastic. John, thank you so much, Brent. I always learn a ton. I didn't know there were races that you could like stop and eat quesadillas and tacos. Oh, totally. Because <laughs> maybe. Beer. Yeah. Beer at the aid station. Some of them do. Jeez. Yeah, it's amazing. Okay. Well, they got something for everybody. Maybe even me. We'll see. I don't know. It wouldn't be a 50 mile, but maybe like a, you know, 900, 1000. 10 Is that even a word? Yard dash, maybe? If, if I could just like dash a thousand yards and eat tacos, that's fine. Um, I don't guys, know what to do with my hands. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, this has been fantastic. Again, thank you both uh, for great content and a great podcast. And our last thank you, of course, goes to you, the listening audience. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening to the Smart Money Simplified podcast with Brent Mikosh. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This way, when Brent comes out with a new podcast, it'll show up directly on your listening device. And we humbly ask that you share this podcast, write it and leave a review as this actually does help others find the show. Again, thank you so much for listening today. For everyone at MP Advisors, this is Eric Johnson reminding you to live your best day every day, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of Smart Money Simplified Podcast. Have any questions about topics covered during the show? Visit www.smartmoneysimplified.com or give us a call at 602-255-0555. Don't forget to click the follow button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the hosts and or guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Raymond James Financial Services Incorporated. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional financial advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service providers with any questions you may have regarding your individual situation. Securities are offered through Raymond James Financial Services Incorporated, member FINRA, and SIPC. 
Investment advisory services offered through Raymond James Financial Services Advisors Incorporated, MP Advisors, LLC, is not a broker slash dealer and is independent of Raymond James Financial Services.